Um, open your Bibles with me to uh, Philippians chapter 4. Um, that's where we'll be this morning. Philippians chapter 4. And what we're discussing, um, or rather I'm speaking about, is uh, peace in the midst of anxiety. Peace in the midst of anxiety. And the, in case you hadn't noticed, there is a, quite a bit of anxiety in our world today. There's a bit of worry um, in our country as well as the world. We've got everything that's happening around us in the news that they love to bombard us with. We've got COVID-19, of course, and we've got the government powers. We've got continued increasing violence and civil unrest at times, right? We've got the profaning of marriage. We've got sexual immorality of all kinds. We have the murder of the unborn throughout and the encouragement of that. We have the tensions between the political parties, the results of the election, the persecution of the church, and threats against our religious liberties, et cetera, et cetera. Amen? And we have stresses in regards to all these things that are happening, don't we? We, we focus on them. We tend to obsess upon them sometimes, depending on your personality. We have stresses in regards to the employment, how things are going to continue in that way, the economy, uh, financial stability, where are things headed with law and order. We have fear of this, fear of that, fear of sickness, fear of pain, fear of the unknown, fear that our rights may be taken away, fear in general, right? And you feel it. It's apparent. It's in front of your face all the time. But as believers, we need to remember as we read this word and we understand the truth of God that we are to handle fear differently than the world, aren't we? We're to handle it differently. And it's not to suggest that we be foolish or not use our brains. God has given us brains. He's given us reason and logic. So we don't abandon those things necessarily. But the point is that fear and anxiety should not rule our lives. Should it? It should not overtake us. And most importantly, we don't let it overtake us because we don't forget that God is in sovereign control over all circumstances. All circumstances. And ultimately, all things serve God's purposes. Don't they? He is accomplishing his will through every detail in human history. He will accomplish it. And he is accomplishing it perfectly. I promise. So what are we studying as we turn here to Philippians 4? Number one, that we as Christians rejoice always. We rejoice always. And number two, we refuse anxiety. And number three, we respond biblically. We respond biblically. So if you would, please stand with me as we read this passage together. We're in Philippians 4, and we'll focus in on uh, verses 4 through 7. Paul writing to the church in Philippi, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone, for the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding all understanding, will guard your hearts 
and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. As always, it is life to us. It is blessing to us. It is convicting. It is uplifting and edifying as well. Lord, let us hear your word this morning. I pray that you would get me out of the way, that you would overshadow me with your cross, Lord, that you would use me to preach your word and that your people would hear your word this morning and act upon it, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we rejoice always, Paul says. That is super easy, isn't it? (laughs) Super easy to rejoice always in the midst of everything going on. So what do we see here in in Philippians? A little textual history and context I think is always helpful. It's written by Paul, of course, as we mentioned to the church in Philippi, correct? uh, It is generally agreed upon with good confidence that Paul wrote this letter most likely during his first imprisonment at Rome. You recall he was in prison several times, of course, and his language seems clear. He uses phrases such as the fact that he was guarded by soldiers. Uh, he had the opportunity to preach the gospel to some of those soldiers. And uh, he makes statements such as the fact that he believed his case would soon be decided. He mentions that as well. All of these points, uh, these points point to it being written towards the close of this two-year Roman imprisonment. So once again, he is in chains. Why do you keep getting yourself in trouble, Paul? All right. And Philippi was a colony under Roman law as well. It's not free from the Roman Empire. And because of that, Paul and Silas would receive much persecution, as detailed in the book of Acts, for instance. And they were at one point imprisoned in Philippi and were miraculously released by an earthquake. If you recall that particular instance, they were released by a miraculous thing and they were quickly released also out of panic when the magistrates realized that they had actually illegally beaten and imprisoned two Roman citizens. And they said, oh no, what have we done? And then the language says that they begged Paul and Silas to leave at that point. Please leave us. And Paul, of course, would visit Philippi a few more times throughout his missionary journeys. But overall, this letter to the Philippians is a letter of thanksgiving. It's a letter of exhortation and edification and encouragement. And Paul thanked them for supporting him and contributing to his ministry. They contributed often to him. He thanked them and praised them for that. He speaks of that in other books of of the great help and encouragement that this church was to him. And they had sent Epaphroditus to go visit Paul, who actually ended up getting sick. And and Paul then sent Epaphroditus back, um, allegedly, most likely, with this letter to the church, to Philippi. So this passage that we read today in chapter 4, this is yet again an admonishment, right? It's an encouragement to those at the church in Philippi. So number one, as we dive in here, we see that Christians are expected to, what? Rejoice always. Rejoice always. Why? How do we do that? Well, Paul says it twice, right? He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. And you hear the the old song play in your head, right? 
He says it twice, so it, apparently it must be important, right? Let's remember that he also said this while in prison. While in chains, he says this. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice always. Again, rejoice. He can somehow repeat it while he's locked up in a Roman prison. And it is not a, a plush, comfy prison like we might see here in America, where you have your TV time and your, your workout time and, and this and that. It's not the same. But Paul says this regardless of his circumstances in which he finds himself, very difficult circumstances. So we can gain from that that therefore we can and should rejoice regardless of our circumstances. Amen? We can and should rejoice. Don't forget that other Christians have been imprisoned as well during this time, many of them. These people understood persecution. They understood it. So not only are they persecuted at this time, but also remember that they are the minority in this culture. They're the, the vast minority, certainly the world. But we recognize that as far as rejoicing always, only believers can truly do this. That's true. Only believers can do this. Only they can rejoice always. Well, why? We know that Sometimes, of course, there is a time for mourning, right? We see that in Scripture. There is a season to mourn and to be sad and to remember those that have left us, perhaps. But there is always, excuse me, always a reason to rejoice. Always a reason to rejoice. This world is not all there is. Amen? That's one reason we have to rejoice. We know that this world is not all there is. Only believers can rejoice always. Why? Well, furthermore, we know the outcome. Amen? We know the end. We know who is in sovereign control. You see, true joy rests not on favorable circumstances. But, Paul tells us, it is in the Lord. Those are three very important words. Who is in the Lord? Believers, only believers can do this. Joy, you see, is not the same as happiness. We understand this, don't we? Joy is not impacted by outside forces. It's not the same. I remember a, a comedian that I heard at one time that I could probably recommend to no one, but I just remember the quote, and he uh, brought up that old quote that says, well, happiness... You can't buy it, right? You can't buy happiness. Money doesn't buy happiness. And he argued, well, have you ever seen someone on a jet ski? They look pretty happy. So it would seem that money does buy happiness. For a time, temporarily, we see it's not the same as, as joy. Joy is not impacted by outside forces. So how can we rejoice always? Well, like we said, we know that God is sovereign over all things. All things. He's not kind of sovereign. He's not mostly sovereign. He is fully in sovereign control of everything. The beginning from the end, Alpha and Omega, and the means to that end. We see this all throughout the Old Testament. The Psalms proclaim this idea over and over again. They proclaim they proclaim this truth to us. Psalm 115, verse 3. 
One of my favorite verses says, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Whatever he pleases. And now some false teachers, however, they will say, well, that just means he does whatever he wants in heaven. That doesn't mean he does whatever he wants on earth. Earth is under man's dominion. We will hear this, and it, it is blatantly false teaching. You'll hear this from people like Benny Hinn and Miles Monroe, Kenneth Copeland, Stephen Furtick, and many, many others. I'm not going to go down the entire list for you because it's far too large. But you'll hear this word from them that, well, he's not in control of everything here on earth. We're in control of that. This is a direct quote from someone named Miles Monroe. You may or may not have heard of him, but they agree with his theology here. He says, quote, you see, God can do nothing here on earth, nothing apart from man's permission. He cannot do it. God may have the power, but man has the permission. Prayer, you see, is essentially man giving earthly license to God to unleash heavenly power here on earth, end quote. And this was during an interview, of course, with Benny Hinn, and he just nodded and smiled and said, that's amazing, that's incredible. That is not amazing. That is false and unbiblical. This is patently false and an unbiblical assault on God's power and his authority over all creation. All creation, not just the heavens. Psalm 135, verse 6. One verse to counteract that entire way of thinking. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. Oops. They got that one wrong, didn't they? And yet again, in Psalm 103, 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. That's one of my favorite verses, too. Isn't that good? His sovereignty rules over all. So you see the, the foundation that we can find in Scripture for our authentic joy in the midst of difficulty, the foundation for our freedom from fear and worry and anxiety isn't going to be some sort of physical exertion, is it? It's not going to be some sort of faking your way through it. It's not. Our foundation, rather, is based on the truth of God and his word and his sovereignty over all things, as we just saw proclaimed to us by the Psalms. All things. Through the sovereignty of God, I've heard it said that the sovereignty of God is the most peaceful doctrine to believers. The most peaceful doctrine. To know that everything is under his control and nothing comes to pass to those around you or to you yourself apart from his ordaining it and allowing it. This gives us great peace. It should, shouldn't it? First Thessalonians chapter 5 proclaims the same. Verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 16 through 18. He says, rejoice always. There it is again. Thank you for reminding us, Paul. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. Only believers can do this. Only believers. Or Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, Paul writing says, In him, Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works what? All things. 
all things according to the counsel of his will. Isn't that good? I mean, think of all the, the Christians who have been martyred throughout church history. Those who have gone before us, those like uh, Polycarp is one that we hear of in the uh, he's an early martyr in the second century. And we know of others as well that were singing praises and exalting God while they were just fine. Everything's cool and, and going well for them. They're, they're prospering. No, while they were being led to the slaughter. They were praising God and singing praises to his name like those burned alive as Roman candles. That's where we get that word, you know. Try not to remind yourself of that when you go to the local fireworks stand. Nero, the evil, wicked emperor of the first century who would light up Christians as Roman candles to light his beautiful gardens. He'd dip them in tar and light them up, wouldn't he? It's horrific to think of. And yet they were singing praises to our God as they were being led to the slaughter. We were told that the basis of our peace and our joy in the midst of deadly persecution at the end of Romans 8 as well. Verses 36 through 39, as it is written, for your sake, for whose sake? For Christ's sake. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Do you see that? This is why we can rejoice always in the Lord. Number two, we as Christians refuse anxiety. We refuse anxiety, or you could say we resist anxiety, right? And that's not always easy either. Right? We understand that. But Paul says, let your reasonableness, verse five, let your reasonableness, or we could say gentleness, be known to everyone. So we see that the people of God should endure all calamities. All calamities and fears with what? Reason and gentleness. And we understand this isn't easy, but why should we do that? Well, he tells us, because the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. We can be reasonable and gentle rather than frantic and fearful and stressed out and all of the above. Why? Because the Lord is at hand. He's right there next to us as believers all the time. He is still omnipresent, right? He is omniscient, omnipotent with his people from the beginning to the end. We know the, what is coming. We spoke of that earlier. We know who wins. That's why we can refuse anxiety. We know the promises of God. We know that he's decreed the beginning from the end. So the grounds for refusing to be anxious is what? The reality of the Lord's care in the life of the believer. He cares for you. And 
at times, when necessary, he disciplines you. Amen? But the word here used for reasonableness, it's, it's a great word in the original language, or it could be known as gentleness. What it's getting at is a great forbearance, a great forbearance or a great patience. It, it speaks of a, a person who is reasonable and gentle to the effect that they don't insist upon their own rights all the time. They're willing to give up their own rights in gentleness and love towards others. That's what this word means. So the person who is a reasonable Christian practices great patience. They demonstrate that they know God with every aspect of their life, with the fruit that they produce, right? Reasonableness and gentleness. Only the Christian, once again, can do this. Only the Christian desires to be in this state of forbearance and gentleness towards all people. And will you do so perfectly? No, you will not. But praise God that the Holy Spirit helps you in and through all of that. It does. But Paul says, do not be anxious about anything. Right after saying, let your reasonableness be known. How reasonable are you when you go to Walmart? For me, it is not great. I can admit that. And I know that. My wife knows that. <laughs> I do. Let your reasonableness be known to all. Do not be anxious. The Christian is to be patient. Not anxious. It's a virtue. Amen. Not stressed out. You see, giving room for anxiety is the exact opposite. The exact opposite of the patience that God says is good for us. It's good for us. Anxiety is what? We should probably define it, right? Anxiety is a response to or a fear of a future danger. We have to remind ourselves of that. It's actually a fear of what might happen. It hasn't even happened yet. And we're fearful and stressing over it and, oh, just pulling our hair out. It hasn't even happened yet. And yes, I used to have huge problems with that, especially in college. Especially in college. But anxiety is a, is a fear of what might happen. But in the Greek here, in this part of the passage, there's a strong emphasis over the word nothing. Nothing. In Greek many times sounds a little backwards, so bear with me, but the literal wording here in the Greek is nothing be anxious about. It kind of flips it backwards there. Nothing. Very strong emphasis on this word. So if we remember to trust God and patiently trust that he has everything under control, everything, then we experience what? Peace and comfort, don't we? What is the remedy for anxiety? What is the remedy for stress? Trust in God. Forbearance, gentleness, reasonableness. Trusting in God, patiently waiting on him. We have songs about that, don't we? Waiting on the Lord. That's true. And why do we do that? Because we know that his purposes are good. His purposes are good for his church, for his people. Therefore, nothing should cause us to be anxious. Anxiety should not overtake us. It should not envelop our lives, should it? 
And do I fail at this? Oh, yeah. Constantly. I fail at it. I do not rely upon God perfectly. Do you? That's why we need him. Of course we don't. Of course we don't rely upon him perfectly. But this, his word, his scripture, knowing God, who he is, his character, that is what brings comfort to us. And the knowledge of who he is causes fear and anxiety to flee. Doesn't it? That's why we're reliant upon him. Scripture shows us over and over that we are dependent people. We're dependent upon him. This is a lifelong process. This is what we, we use the big fancy word to describe it, sanctification. It's a lifelong process, isn't it, of growing in holiness. God reminds us over and over and over to trust him. Why? Because we are fickle. That's right. And, and I mean, we're, we're finite as well. We forget. Over and over we forget. It's silly how often we forget. And we, we like to, you know, poke fun from time to time and be so surprised about what's happening with Israel in the Old Testament. How in the world can they do this over and over again? I would never do that. Sure you would. <laughs> of course I would. I'm a sinful person just as they were. As believers, we are to always remember and to take peace in our dependence upon God, his care for us. Unbelievers, however, they have every reason to be anxious, right? They do. Unbelievers cannot be calmed by the statement, don't worry, God is in control. Is that an encouragement to the unbeliever? Well, of course not. If anything, that's going to cause anxiety to the unbeliever because they know that they're accountable to a holy God. Romans 1 says they know. They're not calmed by that phrase. Believers are. So truly, and this is, this is a bit of a sting, but when we are letting anxious, being anxious and letting anxiety rule our lives, in some way we are demonstrating in a very real way that we don't trust God. It's true. That's convicting, and it should be. It's good to be convicted, isn't it? Every time we complain or we wallow in self-pity and let anxiety overtake us, well, how in the world am I going to fix this? You're not going to fix it. When we act like that, we are in essence saying we do not trust God with the current circumstances. We are in a very real way acting like an unbeliever. It's true. So what are we to do instead? What's our remedy? What's the antidote? Well, verse 6 tells us. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything. In everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. This is our remedy. This is our antidote. It tells us everything we need to know. So instead of sinking into the pit of worry and stress and fear and anxiety, we should take a step back and ask, what is God teaching me through this trial? What is he teaching me through this tribulation, through this trouble that I'm experiencing? 
Because it all serves a purpose. It's not meaningless. If it was meaningless, there is no God. Period. It's not meaningless. The source of our fear and anxiety is ultimately a broken view of God and a lack of understanding of his sovereignty. That's the source of our fear. Scripture commands us, in fact, not to be anxious, not just here, but in many other places. We see it from the mouth of our Lord Jesus Christ himself in Matthew 6. He says, do not be anxious about your life. He says it right there, and he lists several things. He goes on a bit, and he gives some examples. What you will eat. Do not worry about what you will eat. Look at the birds. Are you not of more value than they are? Are you not of infinitely more value to your heavenly Father than the birds? And yet your Father clothes them, and he takes care of them. Not a sparrow falls that he's unaware of. And he further adds, can anxiety add a single hour to your lifespan? No. So in summary on, on why we refuse anxiety, the fact that we are not anxious, as Paul says here in these couple of verses, refusing anxiety will actually show or demonstrate our reasonableness to the world and our gentleness to the world. And that's a good thing. While refusing to succumb to anxiety, we can demonstrate gentleness to those who are anxious. Do you see? What a gospel opportunity that is. Those that you run into in Walmart or wherever it may be. Uh, you can demonstrate to them, I am not anxious about this one bit. I am not stressed about this. And here's why. We can preach the hope of Christ to them. Amen? We can give the reason for our hope in gentleness and compassion towards them. And we will also benefit from the peace of God when we approach God with, Paul says, prayer and thanksgiving. What? Trusting him with our requests, which leads us to our final point here. Number three, we as Christians respond biblically. We respond biblically. What are we to do instead of being anxious? Paul says, but in everything. I, I love to quote Steve Lawson, and he always says, praise God for the buts in Scripture. If you see a but, something is, is, is important. Is, eh, I can't speak on that. Something important is about to happen. Pay attention. But in everything, he says. This is what I like to call the great contrast of the passage. And Paul does this all the time. Do not do this, but do this. This will help you. This will change you. What are we to do? Well, he describes three things. Prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving. He lines it out nice and simple for us. These three things, therefore, describe what? The attitude that we as believers should have in approaching God with our requests. You see that? This is the alternative to anxiety. The remedy, the antidote. My, my wife is, is a great example of this in my own life. I, I heard my own pastor, I'm pretty sure, said that, doesn't it seem like many times God uses your wife to act as the voice of the Holy Spirit to you? 
He does. That's the example of me getting wallowing in self-pity, as I mentioned earlier, and being angry. Usually my anxiety and stress is coupled with anger. I'm sure some of you men in the room can relate to that. And how am I going to fix this? I've got to fix this. I will figure it out, but I don't know how I'm going to figure out figure it out. What is going to come of this? What harm is going to come to me because of this thing, whatever it is? And she interrupts me finally and cuts me off after gently listening to me to ag on for however long. And she says, are you going to continue complaining and whining about this thing? Or are you going to go to your closet and pray about it? The voice of the Holy Spirit through your wife. Amen. And I know, I know you're right. <laughs> Maybe I'll grow in a little bit more and then go to my closet. This is the remedy. This is the alternative. Everything, he says, everything should be addressed by prayer. The Greek word here for every, here, pas, it means, guess what? All. Everything. It's very simple. Or of every kind. Simply put, pray over everything. Not just some things. There are no restrictions on this. He doesn't say, well, pray in this situation, right, over here, but... Over here in this situation, no need to pray. That's fine. You can handle that on your own. Just figure it out. Aren't you so thankful that God's word doesn't say, just figure it out? No, this is all-inclusive, the way we are to pray. Have you ever been to an all-inclusive resort, for instance? It is truly all-inclusive, and it's awesome. Not just your room, but everything in your room. Your amenities, your food, all your meals, the lunch buffet, the beach. I prefer a tropical environment, so there would be a beach where I'm at. But it's, it's all included. And in fact, you are offended. You would be offended if you find out that there is some particular thing that is actually not a part of the all-inclusive package. You'd be offended by that. I thought it was all-inclusive. See, prayer and, and supplication, it is all-inclusive. Any and all circumstances, we should be exercising prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. And supplication, to, to define that, it's the act of asking or begging humbly for a need. Or it can mean to petition God for yourself or sometimes on behalf of another person. It's how we approach God. Amen? But he details even further how we are to do it with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. See, when we have an attitude or a disposition of thankfulness towards God in prayer, it reminds us of a few things. Number one, that the Lord is at hand. Verse five, the Lord is at hand. And then we find out after praying, especially if we find ourselves uh, acting in prayer and supplication on behalf of others, who we find that their need is far greater than ours. We end up finding out that our reasons for being anxious were not all that big after all. They weren't that big of a deal. Nine times out of 10, that's the case with me. 
we see that the insurmountable becomes finite all of a sudden because the God of the universe who flung the stars into space hears our prayer and he understands and he acts on behalf of his people on his perfect timing. Do you believe that? And finally, what does this do? Approaching God with an attitude of thanksgiving and prayer. It brings great peace, doesn't it? Great peace to the believer in recognizing how small we are and how big God is. He can handle it. He spoke the universe into existence. I think he can handle your problems. Amen? And furthermore, he grows you in the process of this prayer and supplication. He grows you and matures you, leads you along as the good shepherd, doesn't he? So what is the outcome of this? What's some application? Well, when we go to God in everything, we approach him in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. What happens? Well, we already mentioned it slightly, but peace happens, right? Peace happens. Peace is the remedy for anxiety. It's the opposite of anxiety. And only God can provide that peace. Only God can do this. Presenting prayer requests to God provides an outlet for anxiety. And God's peace, Scripture says, is beyond understanding. You remember that? It's beyond understanding. It surpasses the human faculties. It surpasses our ability, the abilities of our human mind. It's beyond our reasoning, even. We can't even comprehend it. Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. Amen? And the peace of God, furthermore, Paul says in this passage that it guards our hearts. It protects our hearts. Verse 7, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds. Isn't that amazing? Sounds like a promise to me. Apart from this peace, in fact, our minds are what? Prone to wander. You know that song. We are prone to wander. Our hearts are prone to seek solace elsewhere, whether that be through numbing ourselves somehow or distracting ourselves so we don't have to think about our worries. We, uh, some of us find solace in substances. Some of us find solace in bad company. Whatever the case may be. Some find solace in distraction, and there's plenty of that in our culture today, isn't there? There's plenty of distraction all around us. We have Netflix and Disney Plus and all those things. We have distractions all around us, and sometimes we are prone to wander and find solace in these things. And yet Scripture says the peace of God guards us from anxiety and from wandering away from the Lord. How? When we pray to him and offer supplication with to him with thanksgiving. We know that he has us in his hand. John 6, John 10, the good shepherd has you in his hand and no one will snatch you from his hand. No one, not even yourself. Isn't that good news? 
We are guarded and protected by peace. He says, in Christ Jesus, verse 7. That's where this peace is found. In him alone can we have true peace. I remind you again, Paul is in prison while writing this. Possibly being beaten from time to time. And yet he has peace. He's guarded in Christ Jesus. He's protected in the midst of extremely difficult trials. Not only are we guarded by this peace, but it is so far beyond comprehension that we cannot even explain it. We can't even put it into words. Now that stands out to the world. It does. People notice that. Remember we talked about giving people the hope of Christ, demonstrating by your reasonableness that you're not worried. The reality is that the greatest peace we need, we understand as believers, is peace with God. Amen? When God saved you, when he pulled you out of the muck and raised you from spiritual death, spiritual life, and justified you through Christ and his sacrifice and his finished work on the cross, he gave you peace with God. That's what Romans 5.1 tells us, that if we have been justified, that means declared righteous, made righteous, with a righteousness that is not my own. It's foreign to me, it's alien to me, and it was given to me by Christ. We've been justified by faith in Christ, Romans 5 tells us, and now we have peace with God. We have peace with Almighty God. That's the ultimate peace. You see, sin makes us enemies of God, doesn't it? We are all born at war with God, tainted by the stain of sin, with the sin of Adam. But the sacrifice and righteousness of Christ brings peace with God for those who are united to him by faith, by grace through faith alone. So the question then becomes, do you have peace with God? Do we can talk about the peace of God all day in Scripture through prayer and supplication, but do you have peace with God? Have you truly come to a place of true godly repentance and have you turned from your sin? Has God convicted you of that sin and drawn you to himself? and changed you, and given you a new heart. Is that true of you? Have you placed your faith in Christ? Are you trusting in him alone and his finished work on the cross? Not trying to figure it out on your own. Because you won't. You won't. Trusting in Christ alone and his finished work on the cross to save you from all of your sins, from the punishment that we all deserve. That's peace with God. That's what we all need. That's what all men need. Amen? So if God is working on your heart, he's convicting you of sin or calling you or drawing you to himself. I don't know the people here. I understand that would be the minority here. 
in a church body. But if God's convicting you of sin and calling you to himself and you've never truly come to a place of repentance and trust in him, I urge you to repent truly and trust upon him. Trust in him. Christ, who accomplished the work perfectly. There is salvation in no other name. No other name. The truth is, when you have peace with God, that's a prerequisite to give you the peace of God. Do you see that? Peace with God gives you the peace of God. There is nothing more peaceful than knowing that you have peace with Almighty God. Right? You want to show the world that you're an authentic Christian? Show them the peace that you have in Christ. Tell them about this peace that you have in Christ and that you are not afraid of the future. You're not afraid of what's going on. Let us use those conversations with the world as gospel opportunities. Amen? Tell them about the hope that you have in Christ and his finished work on the cross. Amen? Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are so thankful for your word. We are so thankful for your peace that you give us, God, that surpasses all understanding. When we deserve nothing, we deserve nothing but your wrath and condemnation. We understand that it's all of grace, Father, that you drew us to yourself, you called us to yourself, you justified us, you adopted us into your family, you have done it all. When we deserve nothing, Father, let us approach our anxieties and our fears in this world with the peace that only you offer, Lord. Let us remember that you are in sovereign control. Let us approach you with prayer and thanksgiving. Remind us who you are, God, and remind us of our dependence upon you. Only you can bring that peace, Father, and I ask you to give that peace to those who are here today, that you would continue to refine them and grow them in your word and give us peace, Father. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.